<laughs> Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 212, Jesus H. Christ, part four, The Whole Thing is a Temple. And I'm coming to you from the kitchen, because normally I record these in the back house, but my son Preston, his bedroom is in the back of the back house, the back back house, and it's first thing in the morning, and uh, the bells aren't stern. The rest of the bells aren't awake yet, and so if I go in there and start making all this sorts of noise, uh, I'll wake the boy up, and he might be sleeping for a while, let's be honest. So I set up this mic in the kitchen, so I'm coming to you from the kitchen table, which uh, means I should make a disclaimer. I should give a disclaimer. If you hear a dog, if you hear doors opening, if you hear somebody fire up a coffee machine, I'm, I'm just telling you, um, who knows what, what of my family will make appearances at various points in this episode. So just to say, that could happen. Who knows um, what will unfold in this episode. But this is part four of the series uh, I've been doing on Jesus H. Christ, the man, the mystery the middle initial, but I should first talk about this day, because you know how some days are like, I'm a day, get ready. Here's how this day is going to go down. I'm going to do this episode, then I'm going to watch Manchester City play Liverpool. Now, if that, if has there ever been a more top-of-the-table matchup? Um, and I'm a huge Premier League fan, as I'm sure you are, and this is a matchup of two of the most enjoyable teams to watch. I sound like an announcer. <laughs> two of the most enjoyable teams to watch. Uh, by the way, this is also my two favorite managers playing each other. Um, Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp. By the way, best book on Pep Guardiola would be Pep Confidential, where a journalist followed him for the entire first year when he was at Bayern. Amazing book. Best book on Jurgen Klopp, I would argue, is Bring the Noise. Just a hilarious, fantastic book about Klopp, and it traces sort of his years in the second tier German league, and then his ascendancy the first, and then obviously going to Anfield and taking over Liverpool. Um, so those are the Premier League football manager recommendations for books for the first part of this episode. So I'm going to watch that game. It's going to be fantastic. Then I'm going to drop my daughter off at a birthday party, and go surfing, and then pick her up after surfing. And by the way, this, this birthday party she's going to is a puppy party. Are you, did, did you know these things exist now? Talk about turning up the volume on birthday parties. How brilliant is this? Apparently somebody brings puppies to your backyard. They fill your backyard with puppies, and the nine-year-old girls run around in among the puppies. I mean, oh, genius. So I'm going to pick a nine-year-old girl up from a puppy party. Then we're going to come home and pick up Kristen Bell. And then we're going to go horseback riding up to the Hollywood sign. Because if you can, why wouldn't you? So then we're going to go horseback riding. Then we're going to stop because our friends recently had a baby. It's their first baby. We, saw, we went to visit them right away in the hospital, but now we're going to go see the baby at home. And we're going to hold the newborn baby and then eventually we're going to make our way home and, you know, I'll probably walk the dog. Like that level of a day. We got waves, puppies, horses, babies. 
<laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. So right now the house is quiet. It's like everything's resting before we take on this take on this day. What do you say? Before we inhale this day. So uh oh, and then later this week, uh what five days from now, I'm coming to Atlanta and Nashville for the Holy Shift Tour. Brother Peter Rollins and I will be in uh, Nashville Friday night and then Atlanta Saturday night. Nashville is the James Polk Theater and Atlanta is the Byers Performing Arts Center, I believe it is, and would love to see you. I was in Ohio last weekend, um, Columbus, Cleveland, and then Pittsburgh. And seriously, the love, man just amazing. I swear this tour is getting more fun uh, as it goes along, if that's possible. Oh, and then if you want, um, I send out somewhat regular emails with all the things that are going on, ticket links, etc., to various events coming up. Um, and uh, my wife, Kristen Bell, just told me that she doesn't. she's on the mailing list but doesn't get it because it goes to spam, um, which is funny to me that she would subscribe to an email from like essentially a different part of the house. But uh, you, um, uh, I'd love it if you got on that list because then I send you, you know, stuff that's happening. Um, and uh, if you are on it, check your spam because that's where all that stuff might be. There. Uh, we got that taken care of. Now, let's do part four of this Jesus H. Christ, the man, the mystery, the middle initial that we've been doing and this one, this, the whole thing is a temple. This one, uh, this one might take a while. Um, I'm going to take you through a whole series of passages and then ask sort of one question that it raises. And then from there, uh, we're going to go all over the place. So, and we're going to have to cut, do a bit of history and um, a whole bunch of other background to get at where we're headed. So, Hang with me, because here we go. In Matthew chapter 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. The same story is told in the Gospel of Mark with a slight change. Mark chapter 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. The same story is also told in the Gospel of Luke with an addition in Luke 21. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and the gifts and with gifts dedicated to God. Now, why do Jesus' students, his disciples, find the temple so interesting? Why are they pointing out how massive it is, how beautiful it is, how it's been adorned? First thing, a bit about these students, then a bit about that building. His students, you could, you could argue his students were probably late high school, maybe early 20s. Uh, they're from small towns in the Galilee region. The temple, because in these passages, Jesus is in the temple area with his students. The temple is in Jerusalem. If you were, grew up in a small town in the Galilee, some of these fishing villages had a couple hundred people in them. Jerusalem was where the temple was, and Jerusalem would be considered a, at that time a, a big a city. So these are kids from small towns, young men from small towns in essentially the big city. Now, it was customary for families 
to make their way to the temple for the festivals and feasts. Uh, people would regularly make pilgrimages. So maybe they'd been to Jerusalem, but there's also, uh, maybe this was the first time they'd ever been in the temple mount, the temple area. Now, secondly, uh, we have to understand that they would have been raised to think spatially about all this because they had been raised and taught that God dwells in the temple. So going all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus, the divine and the stories were about the divine dwelling in the temple and priests who ran the temple and people coming to the temple. So in one sense, uh, the whole earth is God's house in first century Jewish consciousness. But in another, the house, I mean, God's house, really, uh, the temple, that's in Jerusalem. So wherever you were in the world, uh, the temple in Jerusalem is where you would go for feasts and festivals and sacrifice and offerings. Um, that's where the priests are and the temple treasury, but that was the center. So I use that word spatially simply to say, where does the divine dwell? Well, the whole earth is God's house, but, but honestly, Jerusalem, where is Jerusalem? Well, it's that direction, depending on where you were. And the architecture of the Temple Mount reflected this centering as well, because the temple was on this big, flat, huge, open uh, space, and there was an outer court for Gentiles, essentially people who weren't Jewish, then there was an inner court, then there was the holy place, then there was an inner, inner place called the Holy of Holies, which the high priest would only go into once a year. So even think about the architecture was all about like concentric circles of nearness. So when, uh, uh, what, a 19, 20, 22-year-old kid finds himself in the temple area, he's in the center of the center of the center. Now, a bit about those stones. Uh, Herod, King Herod, had been rebuilding the temple and he'd been using local limestone, and most of the stones were roughly 50-ton stones. And uh, if you literally Google Herodian stones border, you'll see the stones have a very distinctive trimming on the edges, which gave them a very, uh, Herodian stones, gave them a very distinct look. Um, first century historian tell us, historians tell us that it took a thousand oxen to drag the stones into place. The stones were uh, chiseled at a quarry a mile away from the Temple Mount. And Josephus records that when the temple was built, not the sound of a chisel was heard. So uh, these, all, these giant 50-ton stones, although the cornerstones were 80-ton, 80-ton stones were moved a mile to move them into place, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them 2,000 years ago. Herod figured out how to move 80-ton stones a mile 2,000 years ago, and the Temple Mount, there are sections of the Temple Mount where those 80-ton stones are 100 feet above the ground. So, uh, by the way, when you see the Western Wall to this day, those are the Herodian stones that are still standing 2,000 years later. So you can imagine if you come from a small fishing village of two or 300 people, and, one, and Herod was one of the richest men in the world. Some people think one of the richest people ever proportionally um, in the history of humanity. And he's rebuilding the temple. You can see why they may have been a little in awe of this absolutely massive structure with these thousands of 
50 and 80 ton stones in the center of the center of the center of things. You can see why they would have a lot to say about it. You can see why they would have been in awe and why they would have pointed this out to their teacher. Now, let's go back through those same passages. When Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. The, the student is clearly like, whoa. And then what is Jesus' response? Jesus said, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, same story, Luke 21, his disciples were remarking how beautiful the stones are, and Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. It's as if his students are completely understandably in awe of this structure, which is the center of the center of the center where the divine dwells. And Jesus' response is, really? You find this impressive? The clock is ticking. It's all coming to an end. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Not only does he not share their reverence and amazement, he insists that it's all going to come crashing down. Now, this isn't the only place where Jesus H. Christ has something to say about the temple. In Matthew 12, he's in this discussion with the religious leaders about uh, Sabbath. And uh, actually, the story that's being discussed here, we'll cover in a whole episode later. But he says to them, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? And then Jesus says to them, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. So he's in this discussion about what the priests did on Sabbath and then and how they essentially desecrated the Sabbath um, and yet are innocent, but I'm telling you, one greater than the temple is here. <laughs> Wait, what? One greater than the temple. And then in John chapter 2, um, he's in another discussion, a debate um, with these religious authorities, and they say to him, what sign because in the Gospel of John, it's all about signs. What sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Well, which temple? The, what's he talking about? Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days. Which one? The stone one? Because we know from history that, it, that Herod the Great built that temple and it took forever. When Jesus would have said this, at that point, Herod's temple had been under construction for 46 years. So the raise it again in three days, one of the richest men in the world hired 10,000 laborers, and at that point had been working 46 years to build the temple. So the destroy this temple and I'll raise it in in three days, he's probably not talking about the stone temple. He's talking about himself, destroy this temple, his body, is this about his death and resurrection? Because if that's the case, then he's conflating his body with the temple. And then at the end, Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial, witnesses come forward and they declare, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So the witnesses, this is the, one of the main charges against Jesus that leads to his crucifixion is that... He had said he could destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And that's what they remember, his comments 
uh, in Matthew about one greater than the temple, in John about destroy this temple and I'll rise, raise it in three days. What an odd thing. What an, what an ambivalent, uh, strained, uh, strange relationship Jesus has with the central structure of the world that he comes out of. The religious, it was a government, it was a political, it was an institutional structure that was like the center heartbeat of his people. And yet, the only instances we have of him, the the majority of instances we have of him interacting with the temple and people in regards to the temple is... uh, strained at best, ambivalent, negative? How would you say that? So let's begin to pull this apart as we work our way towards our lives. Um, How to get at this? Well, let's start with the historic record. The temple that we're talking about here, the temple in Jerusalem, it actually was destroyed in the generation after Jesus, and not not one stone was actually left on top of another. So in the year 70, there was a Jewish revolt. It roughly started to gain its head of steam in 66. Um, Rome sent uh, all sorts of soldiers to deal with it. The Roman general Titus was dispatched by the Caesar Vespasian, and Roman soldiers came and completely destroyed the Temple Mount. They uh, eventually set it on fire, um, burned up everything, wood, and then the stones were all uh, destroyed and pushed over on each other, except for like a one, essentially, part of the Temple Mount, which kind of remains to this day pieces of it. Otherwise, they burned it to the ground, they smashed the stones, they slaughtered thousands of people, they sent some people to do hard labor in Egypt. What? Yeah, literally sent them back to slavery in Egypt. It was an absolute brutal destruction. The temple was the center of the Jewish world, and the center in the year 70 was destroyed. So uh, remember then that these gospels are happening, are first circulating in the generation after Jesus, sort of in the rubble of this destruction. Um, And so in some ways, you have the writers saying, you know what, he said this would happen, and it did. By the way, uh, one of the, when you think about Jewish history, for us, history is often like you think of your calendar, those nice, neat squares, and so we'll say, how long ago was it? Was it 200 days or was it 190 days ago? Um, Is it four days from now or five days from now? For us, the passing of time is these very set, fixed units of measurement, days, months, years. But uh, in in Jewish consciousness, history is much more about events. Um, when, When things happened was in relation to large, massive, cataclysmic events that happened. Um, but the temple coming down, as you can imagine, that was like the destruction of a whole world. Um, it was like an apocalypse. I was actually originally going to call this chapter, this episode, The Apocalypse Already Happened. Um, because when you're reading these Gospels and you're reading these New Testament letters, in some ways, um, the destruction of the temple is like, it's like post-apocalyptic. The world as they knew it, and as it was ordered, remember to think spatially, the temple is the center. The center has been burned to the ground and all the rocks 
have, there's not one left standing on top of another. So uh, when people talk about, do you think an apocalypse is coming? Uh, at least in, in Jewish history, yeah, apocalypses, several, have already happened. Um, now we'll get to the implications of that in a little bit because there's way more going on here. <laughs> We're just beginning to peel back the layers. Now, the temple was the central institution of Jesus' tribe, and it had a treasury. And according to Torah, you were commanded to pay a tax to the temple treasury. Um, and that tax was meant to be distributed among the poor to care for those whose basic needs weren't being met. Proper justice and distribution, making sure everybody has enough bread, the central themes of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and then, uh, and this is a, the ground I'm covering in my Leviticus commentary, the temple was the meeting place of heaven and earth. The temple was the place where the rituals were a way of enacting a new ordering of the world, a new ordering always based around justice, compassion, and everybody having their needs met. But the temple in Jesus' day had become corrupt. The power structure that controlled the temple was essentially had become a, a thing in which a, a few people were in charge and it became self-perpetuating. And so the money from the treasury wasn't going to the poor as it was supposed to. It was lining the pockets of a few very wealthy families who controlled the Temple Mount. And to control the Temple Mount was to control, in many ways, the economy, social structures, the religious institution of the Temple. Um, archaeologists have discovered, have dug up what, what would be the equivalent of $5,000 bottles of wine um, in the wealthy housing area of the people who ran the Temple Mount. So it had become a racket. It had become corrupt. So in some ways, you can read, another reading of these stories would be Jesus' ambivalence and even disdain about the temple, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus' ambivalence and disdain about the temple is he is coming against this corrupt institution in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, which is why people keep speaking of him as a prophet, is he speaking truth to power, he's raging against the machine, and obviously some people argue very compellingly that this is what got Jesus killed, is there was a very strong religious military industrial complex. Uh -huh, are you with me on this? That controlled the Temple Mount. And if you threatened their stranglehold on power, if you threatened to speak against their wealth and how the Temple had been corrupted, you would be taken care of quickly. You would be executed because um, we can't have that. So this was the powerful keeping themselves in charge and getting rid of all threats. So, and, and to me that is, yeah, that's the story underneath the story underneath the story. But anyway, when Jesus says this temple is coming down, in some ways you can read it in classic prophetic fashion. It deserves to come down because it's no longer the place where heaven and earth come together. It's no longer a place that is making sure that justice and righteousness are being done. It's no longer a place that has a heart for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger among you. Um, and in the, in the prophetic tradition, if some other military superpower comes and destroys you, that is essentially proper judgment on the inequality in the injustice. So you can see sort of hovering on the edges of all of this 
are the political realities that the prophets were speaking to, and the prophets always saying, if you don't get your house in order, somebody's going to come and something horrific is going to happen. So you can read that as well as subtext. That's going on there for sure. But there's another reading of all of this, because we're almost through the intro. <laughs> Having some, and this, this reading has something to do with how you understand space and presence. Okay, so here's what I mean. A bit about temples. For thousands of years, people had been building temples. Places where their gods and goddesses dwell. Places to offer sacrifices and give gifts. This is why often temples were built on high places. Temples were built on mountains. You can see this in the Hebrew scriptures. They built high places to their gods and goddesses is because Oftentimes the gods and goddesses were believed to be up. So sky, rain, moon, um, celestial bodies. Uh, the temple was a place to open you up to the divine, to give gifts, to celebrate, to express gratitude. Now what a temple does is it sets a particular space apart. So... There is regular everyday space where you live and where your kids go to school and where you get gas for your minivan and where you get groceries at Trader Joe's. Are you with me now? Uh, a temple, what a temple does is it set a particular space apart as holy sacred space where the divine dwells. That's where you go to meet your God. Now, the thing about a temple for thousands of years is if you name a particular space as a holy or sacred space, if you set it apart, something else happens by default. Because if one space is named holy, then the other space that isn't that space isn't holy. If one space is designated sacred, then what that does by default is name other space common. So the very nature of building a temple is you're dividing space up. Perhaps you grew up in church, and they would say to you, don't run in church, but you, which means in like that main area where the pews were, but you could run in the parking lot. So what that is doing is saying, we conduct ourselves differently in this space than that space, and there's always obviously a spiritual dimension to architecture. This space is set apart and different than other space where you can run and throw things, etc., etc. Now, that is necessary because you need to name something as sacred in order to conceive of that which is sacred. So the power of a temple is, and setting, a, a set, setting something aside as holy or sacred is it helps you conceive of the idea of something sacred and holy. But what that does is it divides things up, and if you stay there too long, you'll end up with a divided view of the world. Some spaces are sacred and holy, and some spaces aren't. So the real, the art of it, in some ways, almost metaphorically, is you have to set up a temple to conceive of the holy and sacred, but then you gotta tear that temple down over and over again to make sure that you don't inadvertently end up dividing all of life into two different kinds of spaces. It's like you need the form temple to access spirit. But then at some point, if the form gets in the way of spirit, you need to leave that particular form and find some other form. Now, in case that sounds a little bit, woo, 
Here's what I mean. I want to show you an interaction Jesus has with a woman, and then I want to show you a parable of Jesus. Notice what Jesus keeps doing. Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, and she says, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So her, this was Samaritan woman, her ancestors worshiped on a different mountain than Jesus' ancestors who insisted that Jerusalem was the center. Once again, she's essentially saying, our people disagree on where the center is. Where is the holy place where the divine dwells? And Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. So she essentially wants to have an inner squad scrimmage, correct? She wants to, she's, she's in, is it your mountain or our mountain? Where is the center? And Jesus says, the time is coming, a new era, a new age, a new period is unfolding where we will no longer think about the divine and arguments about whether the divine, we will no longer think about the divine in terms of which mountain, this one or that one, is where the divine dwells. She sees this awareness and awe of the divine presence as an issue of geography. She's still thinking of it in terms of space. And Jesus is saying to her, I've come to introduce you to a whole new way of thinking it in terms of spirit and truth. Now, Pause that. Let's go to uh, a parable Jesus tells about sheep and goats. Um, A king, in the story that Jesus tells, a king is sorting out among his subjects. um, He's sorting out who goes where. And he says to a group of people, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick and you look after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer the king, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, that's just one section of the larger parable about sheep and goats being separated. But the thing that's so astounding about the parable is the king is saying to these people, here, come on in. I'm inviting you to participation in this new ordering of things. And these people are like, what are you talking about? Uh, We don't remember ever seeing you hungry, sick, in prison. And he says, whenever you saw, and he uses this phrase, the least of these, and took care of them, you were doing it for me. Now, what is that? And oftentimes the parable gets read as see sheep and goats. Some people are going to burn forever. Some people, I'd say, wait, 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 there's something far more significant happening in this parable. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I've come to help you understand that the divine is present in every encounter. It's like, it's almost like he's saying, that's what I'm after. I'm I'm trying to wake people up to every experience being an encounter with the divine. 
It's almost as if he's saying, I want you to see every interaction in a new way. I want you to see the depth and the holiness and the sacred nature of all of life so that when you do what you do, you do it an all with an awareness that the divine is present. When you see somebody who's sick, when you see somebody who's hungry, when you need somebody who's clothes, that you would see the divine present in that moment. Now, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So where does the divine dwell? Now, you have seeds of this throughout Jesus's tradition. The earth is Lord's and everything in it from the Psalms. When Solomon dedicates the temple that he built, uh, he says, well, God really dwell on earth. The heavens, even the highest heavens can't contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So even when the first temple is built in all of its grandeur and beauty and size, even the king, Solomon, who's building the temple is like, I get it that the divine can't really dwell in a building. So, so you can see that in this tradition that Jesus came out of, early on, even when Solomon builds this giant, massive temple, he's already saying, I get that a temple can't confine the divine. Like, really, I could build a building and God could live in it? So you can see the seeds of subversion are sort of already there. But then notice the Gospel of John, which begins with John saying, in the beginning was the Word. Now, remember, Word is how... Uh, in the Genesis poem that the whole thing begins with, um, God creates by speaking. Source begins to make these beautiful distinctions in creation through words, and God said, and it was so, and God said, and it was so. So word is a way of speaking of the divine source creative energy, essentially pulsing through the whole universe, bringing new realities into being. But John begins his, his gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word became flesh and templed among us. Sometimes it gets translated, and tabernacled among us. So when these first followers of Jesus are trying to explain what was happening with Jesus H. Christ, they use temple language, essentially saying that divine creative energy, and we'll do a whole episode on this coming up soon, but that divine creative energy that brings the whole universe into being came among us and templed the divine dwelled among us in flesh and blood. He uses this exact language to speak, essentially saying, in a body. So these first Jesus followers were conflating Jesus with the temple. So you can read this as a Jewish story about a Jewish tribe and a Jewish rabbi who insists that a Jewish temple is going to be destroyed, and then it does get destroyed. But you can also read this as a new understanding in human history about what it means to be human, because what this story keeps insisting is that a human is where the divine dwells, that there's a new temple, and it's people. Or the whole thing is a temple as well as people. Now, his first followers took this and went with it, because by the time we get to the New Testament, uh, like in the letter to the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So what's happening here with Jesus H. Christ is a rethinking of the temple and the center. And at the time of Jesus, the center was a building in Jerusalem, 
But what Jesus says is that's coming down. One greater than the temple is here. He comes to show you that the whole thing is a temple, that you are a temple. In the letter to the second Corinthians, one of the first Christians says, we are the temple of God. And then in the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by spirit. Now, here's what's interesting. These people in Ephesus are waking up to these ideas, and they're being told that they're a temple. Now, why is that interesting? Because the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor in the first century was the home of the temple to Artemis. The goddess Artemis her followers had built a temple to her in Ephesus, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. So people came from all over the world just to see the temple of Artemis. Uh, a man named Antipater of Sidon had traveled all over the ancient world, and he said, I have uh, set my eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which is a road big enough for chariots. He's like, I've seen the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus. I've seen the hanging gardens and the Colossus of the sun. I've seen the huge labor of the high pyramids. But he says, when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. <laughs> so people who had seen the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world, people who had seen the pyramids say, the pyramids pale in comparison to Artemis's temple. And those people living in that city are told, actually, in this new Jesus understanding, you, you frail, feeble, fragile, awkward human beings, you're the temple. In a city known for the most beautiful temple in the world, these early Jesus followers are introduced to the idea that they are a temple, that humans are the place where the divine dwells. Yeah, this is an elevated understanding of what it means to be human. Uh, this is an elevated understanding of where the divine dwells. So now let's go all the way back to those students saying to Jesus, man, this temple is awesome, it's beautiful, it's huge, it's massive. And essentially, Jesus is saying, that's all coming down. You can read it as a historic prediction of the Roman conquest, but you could also read it at a whole other level as Jesus saying, the understanding that the divine is more in other places than in the place you are at, that the divine is in some places more than other places. It's almost like he's saying, that whole understanding has to come down. The idea that some people have holier jobs than others. The idea that some space is more sacred than other space. The idea that some people have a calling that's more elevated or important or spiritual than other people. That understanding has to come down. It's going to come down. It's almost like he says, because I've come to usher in a new era where that temple comes down so that you can come to see that the divine dwells everywhere. Jesus H. Christ comes to announce that the whole thing is a temple. See, for many people, the spatial breakdown of space is still the dominant image. You go to a place 
to be near the divine. You go hear a certain person. You go enact a particular ritual to get closer to the divine. Uh, or sometimes what happens is the way that it's structured is you come in out of the big bad world with all of its very real dangers and threats. You come in out of it to meet with God. And then once you've had the meeting, then you leave it to go out into that space. But what Jesus comes to do is teach us to encounter the holy, the sacred, and the divine in all of life. So any gathering, any temple, any ritual, any rite that helps you get those eyes, it helps train your sensibilities, it helps heighten your sensitivities, that's beautiful. But if at any point it keeps things divided, then it's working against what Jesus H. Christ comes to do, which is to announce that the whole thing is a temple. Jesus H. Christ comes to open our eyes to the divine presence in all of life. This is at the heart, a Eucharist is this ancient ritual um, involving bread and wine, the body and blood of the Christ. It's an ancient ritual. The bread and wine is holy because all bread and wine is holy because all of life is holy. So you take the bread and wine, you go through the ritual, in order to open your eyes, to heighten your senses to the divine presence in all of life. Yeah. Now, often what happens, it, it, what can easily happen is the people running the temple have a vested interest in you keeping coming to the temple. And especially when there are paychecks involved and power, um, it can be easy for the temple to be corrupted. This is what happened in Jesus' time, and it's easy... Uh, thousands of years later, for the temple, the form, to work against spirit, which has come to open us up to the divine presence in all of life. So it's like you have to hold the form loosely. Uh, a gathering, a building, a space, a sacred space where you could go and be reminded, have your eyes open, that's fantastic. You could, you could recite a poem, you could say a prayer, you could sing a song, you could chant a mantra, you could sit in silence, you could hear somebody expound a great idea that gave you insight and truth. Oh, fantastic. A, and a regular gathering of that, fantastic. In the degree to which it opens your eyes to the divine presence in the rest of life. Do you see that subtle little shift there? Jesus Christ comes to rescue us from thinking that it's just a job, or it was just a conversation, or it was just a meal. Jesus H. Christ comes to rescue you from thinking that you're just a mom, or you're just an employee, or you're just a citizen, or you're just a neighbor. He comes to wake you up to the fact that the whole thing is a temple, that every encounter has a sacred, holy, divine depth to it. So what happens is you are learning to keep your eyes open, especially with the people who are most annoying, especially with the people who most get under your skin, especially with the people who just make you so angry. You're learning to be like, wait, 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 the whole thing's a temple. I'm a temple. This person's a temple. The whole thing's a temple. What? is the divine up to? What is it in me 
that is so provoked that this person brings out? Why, when I see them coming, do I immediately tense up? Like, oh no, what? Oh no, they're going to do that. They're going to say that. They're going to hide knives in their words. You with me on all this? Yeah, yeah that's, this is the whole thing. When you come to see that the whole thing is a temple, uh, then your eyes are opening more and more and more to the holy sacred depth that is right here, right now. Jesus H. Christ comes to free us from the idea that the divine is somewhere else. Science, business, art, healthcare, earth care, humanitarian aid, law, service, all of it takes place on holy ground. The whole thing is a temple. So whatever it is that you do, whatever ways perhaps that space has been divided up. It's nice that other people can do that, but I just do this. That's classic keeping the temple standing. That temple was a beauty, that, that form helped you conceive of depth and meaning and significance, but now that temple in your mind needs to come down. Yeah, because one greater than that temple is here, a better idea, which is that whatever it is that you're doing, yeah, it's taking place in a temple. We need temples, communities, rituals, rites, gatherings. We're not against the form. It helps you experience, gives you language. It taps you into other people's experiences. It helps open your eyes. Great, great. Those are all incredibly helpful in order to move you beyond the form to the spirit presence in all of life. Yeah, that's what Jesus H. Christ comes to do. I love it that when you're in the gospel, when you're reading it, you're like, wait, it seems like he comes essentially as a religious leader. So it would seem like he would have the ultimate respect and reverence. He would be doing everything he can to keep that structure in place. But instead, it's almost like he's like, well, for us at this time in this place, that structure worked for a while. It was helpful. At that, in, in that stage of the journey... It was incredibly helpful and supportive and necessary. But now it's time for a new chapter. It's time for a new stage. So for those of you, perhaps a form worked well for you for a while. It, 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 uh, it got you to God. It opened you up. It gave you the taste. It helped you see. Wonderful. But perhaps now what's happened is the form isn't working anymore. It's in the way. Yeah. So it has to come down for you. Now, it has to come down for you at the exact moment. It might be exactly what somebody else needs. So when you think about building temples and tearing them down, it's like we're endlessly in the process. That class, that mantra, that uh, practice, that ritual, that habit, that it it that was a beautiful temple. It gave order to things. It gave structure to things. It gave you access. It helped you conceive. Yeah, that temple worked, and now it doesn't. Ideas can be temples. At one point, that was a radical new idea. You needed it developmentally. It helped you take the next step. That structure helped you, man. It helped you celebrate another day clean and sober. That structure helped um, with discipline, with order, with delayed gratification. It, it helps set your moral, great, yeah. It helps set your moral compass. It helps you discern right and wrong, great. 
Wonderful. That helps you navigate the world. Yes, that temple was exactly what you needed. And now it might need to come down. Maybe you don't need it anymore. Maybe what was once liberating has now has a strange enslaving power to it. Yeah, do you see how you're holding the form and your participation in it loosely? So what you have Jesus here, when the disciples are like, look at these huge, he has, he, you'd think he would say, and we need to do everything we can to protect the temple because it's where God lives. And instead he's like, eh, one greater than the temple's here. Something new's happening. And he essentially declares an apocalypse, right? Like it's all coming, not one of these stones. So apparently, as Jesus conceives of God, God doesn't need human beings defending these forms. Because that's the last thing Jesus is doing here. He's like, yeah, the whole thing, it's, it's, it's going to be a pile of rubble within a generation, and that actually happens. And in some senses, you can almost sense under it, he's oh, not only okay with it, but like, let's, let's, let's go, let's go. I mean, there are passages in the Gospels, which we'll get to, where he's basically like, come on, let's speed this thing up. <laughs> like, wants it to happen, wants certain things to happen. Uh, yeah, there's an energy there. It's almost like if you conceive of God dwelling there, then that there is going to have to come down before you're ever going to be able to conceive of the divine dwelling in all places. It's almost like, what is the new, the next chapter look like? Well, to get where we're going, the temple is going to have to be destroyed so that people can see that the whole thing is a temple. Yeah, and you, my brothers and sisters, whatever it is that you do, Jesus H. Christ comes to show you that the whole thing is a temple. All of it's taking place in a temple. Yeah, so if you want a prayer, if you want a mantra, if you want something to repeat, man, how about this one? Show me. I swear to you, that prayer, that mantra is never far from my heart and my lips. <laughs> show me. Show me. When it's difficult, when I'm interacting with people, I'm like, what? When, yeah, show me. I don't want to live in a divided world. I want to live with this awareness that the whole thing is a temple because it makes life so much better. <laughs>